Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number four. Today, we're going to be talking about whitetail spring cleaning. And by that, I mean the projects that you and I should be working on this spring to prepare ourselves for the 2014 season. By the end of this episode, you'll be motivated to get to work and you'll be armed with new ideas to take to the woods. Cue the music. All right, with me today on this Wednesday afternoon is Mr. Dan Johnson. What's happening, my friend? You know what? I'm pretty excited. I got Friday off work, and me and the wife are going to go turkey hunting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's the second season in Iowa. We're going to chase some gobblers, and uh, hopefully they cooperate. Oh, I'm jealous. We Our season here in Michigan doesn't open until Monday, so I'm going to be sitting here all weekend thinking about you and, and those thunder chickens. That's... <laughs> our uh, My wife shot her first beard or her first beard, what am I talking about? <laughs> she shot She shot her first turkey last year, and uh, she was, she's addicted now. She is so excited. Now, don't try to get her to hunt a deer, because they're too cute. She has no problem killing an ugly animal. She yeah. thinks turkeys have ugly faces, and she has no problem shooting something that's ugly. That's, that's funny. It's, you know, the same thing with Kylie, my wife. She... She has no interest in hunting deer, but she has gone with me turkey hunting a few times. She's just filmed and kind of been along for the ride. But actually this year, she said that she wants to try it herself too. So maybe we'll be able to have uh, Kylie shoot her first beard too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Long day at the office. Yeah, I guess so. Man, I'm glad she's not shooting beers because given what you've got in your face, usually that could be dangerous. <laughs> well, there are days where I'm sure she wants to. <laughs> yeah, marriage, right? Right. Oh goodness. Yeah, I uh right now I'm just wishing we had warm weather again. We had a couple nice days this past weekend and now today and yesterday it's back into like the twenties and thirties, so it's feeling it's feeling rough over here, but I'm ready to start enjoying spring weather and turkey hunting and all that good stuff. Yeah, where I'm at right now it's fifty seven degrees outside and it looks like this weekend is gonna be uh mid fifties to mid sixties. I think maybe Sunday or Saturday it might get up might get up into the like low 70s but um yeah this has just been a crazy year for weather i don't know el nino or something must be happening i don't know (laughs) whatever it is i don't like it exactly it's been it's been rough but um but yeah good times are ahead um so So i guess with let's start talking about let's start talking about whitetails let's do it that's usually what's on our mind isn't it (laughs) that is every day so so that said then um, I guess we'll get right into the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about today, and that's spring cleaning. And that's not really what most people would think about when we say spring cleaning. What we're actually going to talk about today, Dan, is the projects and the work that we should be doing right now as whitetail hunters that's going to better prepare us for the hunting season. And today on the Wired Hunt blog, actually, I don't know if you saw it yet, Dan, but I posted an article called The Secret to Killing Big Bucks. And the point of this article was that they're actually isn't a secret. There's no fancy strategy or special tactic that's going to, you know, be that magic bullet. Instead, if you want to kill mature bucks, you know, I think it really comes right down to just getting off your tail and doing the hard work. 
And then whether that's scouting or stand preparation or knocking on doors, practicing with your bow, you know, the list can go on and on. But the point I was trying to make is that a lot of us, we know what we should be doing, but we rarely actually take the action and do it. So today what I want to talk about were some of those projects and tasks that you and I are doing right now to get prepared and, you know, some of these different ideas that maybe the listeners would want to try out and get working on this spring as well. Does that sound uh, sound decent to you? It seems like the list never really ends. It just, it, uh, it's a continuous improvement type of thing. Yeah, so true, so true. And, and kind of speaking of that, what I actually decided to do this year is because I'm, I'm just like that. There's so many different things I want to do, and it seems like I can never get them all done. So actually, just a few weeks ago, I put together a list that I'm actually writing out all the different things I want to do this spring, all the different work I have to get, get done. And I'm trying to like prioritize it. So I'm putting it into order of this thing's the most important thing. And this is the next. And then even trying to assign like deadlines. I know this sounds kind of, um, I don't know. I've got my, my work background is coming into play maybe too much here, but I'm trying to organize myself, I guess, to, to get more done. Um, because it's just so easy to say, I'm going to do all these things. And then, you know, life gets in the way and, uh, and you don't end up doing it, but no, that's, that's just me. Yep, that's uh, that's a good a good thing to do. I'm kind of uh, because I I do live an hour or so away from my hunting property. I have to schedule my trips down there as well to get as much work done as I can uh, on the days that I I guess schedule or have available to do so, and uh, you know try to knock out as much of it out as I can. Now I you know I'm looking at your uh, the notes here. And I see that uh, some of these things I, I won't do until later in the year. Some of them I want to do right now. And, it, and it's not like a, a spring thing. It's a continuous list that runs through the summer, even into the early fall, right before hunting season even starts. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, a lot of these things, like you said, they can be done right now. They can be done over the summer or they'll continue to need to be done all through that period. So that's a that's an awesome point. Yeah. That said, then... Uh, is there anything that you've started working on yet or that you're planning on doing soon, Dan? Well, typically, and it, because I'm already going to be down there this weekend for uh, turkey, I do a lot of scouting because I, um, I do a lot of run and gun. Um, I, I haven't had a, I've hunted archery turkeys before, but my style that I, was, that I came up on was run and gun with a shotgun turkey hunting. Yep. So... I'll get the gun out, and while I'm doing that, I'm always looking for deer sign, always looking for crossings, you know, kind of uh, what uh, Dan Infelt talked about last week on the podcast. Um, you know, I'm out there scouting, looking for deer sign every time I go into the woods. That That's going to be the first thing that I do this week while I'm uh, weekend while I'm shed hunting. The other thing is getting my mineral stations ready. Um, okay. I'm going to be putting uh, mineral out. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to be hanging trail cameras quite yet just because there's nothing really to take pictures of as as far as I'm concerned. Um, because I use mineral stations. Yeah. There is kind of a health benefit towards some of the minerals that are out on the market, but I'm looking strictly for what bucks are in my area and what bucks made it through the winter through the hunting seasons. So as far as what's going to happen in the near future, it's scouting mineral stations. That's uh, there's like about 19 different things I could talk about on those two topics. So I'm mm-hmm. going to try to figure out where I want to start here, but let's start with scouting. Um, 
like you mentioned, we had a really good conversation about scouting last week with Dan in fault. But when you're out there, what are you usually looking for? What are the things that you personally really like to key in on? Okay, so for me, I always take what I've learned from the last season and make my adjustments towards the new season, the next upcoming season. So I'm going to the areas where I've had historic, historically good luck, but I've also am looking around those areas to see if there's entry and exit points to those, you know, whether it's a betting area or to travel corridor. And the perfect example is remember that shed I found on uh, that fence crossing this year. Yep. I do. That is a huge pinch point. And there's that river and then there's a a big old fence with a cattle pasture right right. there. And it all comes down into one area. And I have a feeling there is a lot of activity that goes through there. Now it's not, it may not be, uh, it's one of those places where if I had one place to sit on my farm for an all day sit, it's probably going to be that pinch point. Yeah, no, I could see that being a great spot during the rut for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much the, you know, as of right now, the scouting portion, you know, obviously old sign with rubs and, and scrapes and whatnot, but, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of hard because my property lays big. There's not a lot of actual places you can hunt because there, because there's a lot of wide open timber as you saw. Right. But from a scouting standpoint, you know, just looking to looking for where the deer are crossing and just basically make micromanaging that the attack for next year. Yeah, no, that's great. I think a lot of that, a lot of the things you mentioned are things I do too. Um, a big part of what I've been doing this year is, is just like you said, looking at the spots I've hunted in the past and then figuring out how I can tweak it based on what I learned last season or what I'm seeing on the ground this year. So, you know, for example, there's one of the main properties I hunt here in Michigan. I have seen a lot of great deer, but I've haven't had a lot of shot opportunities. I've always been a little bit off or the deer's just a little out of range or just out, you know, behind some brush. And so this year, there's a couple stands I want to move that I've kept in the same place because you know, I always saw deer there and they seem like good areas. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, if you can't get a shot, what's the point of seeing them if we're trying to, you know, hunt these deer? So there's a couple areas where I'm going to move a stand no more than maybe 20 or 30 yards. Um, I'm going to be looking at the same general area. But I'm going to feel a lot more confident that given what I saw last year and given some of the sign I saw this year, I think that I'm now going to be able to get that shot opportunity that's evaded me so far. So. I think that's one of the things I'll be doing this spring a little bit more is just looking for those different ways I can tweak current stand locations. Um, And then I think, you know, when it comes to scouting for me, I also, I hunt a few new areas every year. Usually I'm picking up some new properties and I do a decent bit of out of state hunting too. So when I'm scouting those new areas, I look for a couple little pieces of high level information. Um, The first thing I like to do is look for a sign that's going to help me understand if there are mature bucks on that property. Um, and there's two, maybe three things I look for that help me understand that. And it's not a perfect picture, but it gives me an idea. Um, one, I'm looking for huge rubs. Um, you know, we've, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but lots of times, you know, that people say that a mature buck or a big buck, he'll rub little trees, he'll rub medium sized trees, he'll rub big trees, but a young buck will most likely not rub on really big trees. So if you see a really big tree rubbed up, probably 90 eight percent of the time that's going to be a pretty big mature deer so you know when i see a really big rub 
that's a great indication that there's a big buck in the area. And usually if there's a big buck in the area, you know, you know that this general region or general couple properties in that in that area could have some good deer. So that's a good sign for me. I also, you know, like Dan and Felt talked about last week, I do keep an eye out for really big tracks. Um, something I learned from from his site too is using your fingers um, to tell or to kind of judge how big or old a deer is. You know, if it's three or four fingers wide, that's a pretty decent deer. So I keep an eye out for those types of things. And then otherwise, I'm looking for the very basics. I'm looking for those bedding areas, um, doe bedding areas, again, like we talked about last week, maybe circles of several different beds together, and then those isolated buck bedding areas, and then just looking for those pinch points, um, just like you were talking about, those spots where it's going to funnel deer down that will make for good rut hunting locations. So when I'm scouting, I'm looking for all those different types of things, and then using aerial maps and stuff to confirm or to get better ideas of where to scout and look for that on-the-ground sign. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been doing that a little bit so far this year. I'll probably be doing a lot more of it just after turkey season. We'll be, we'll be turkey hunting here for another week or two. Then once that's done, I'm really going to be hitting the ground hard until, until green up happens. Um, so I think that's what my scouting regimen is going to look like for the next few weeks. And it's crazy because then that automatically flows into the summer when me, I start setting my stands in the summertime. Uh, probably, mm-hmm. you know, late July, early August, but it's so crazy. So you think you got it figured out. You get, you've done your scouting, you've hung the tree stands. Next thing you know, I, I had, let's see, six tree stands hung or six locations trimmed out and three stands hung. And then one, uh, set that I is my, you know, running gun set, so to speak. I did not hunt those pre-trimmed stands for, I bet you I hunted maybe one. So the, the, the game wow. plan definitely changes throughout right. the year. And it's good to be prepared, but you have to be mobile. Yeah, no, that's true. We could do a whole episode. I think we're, we probably will do a whole episode just about that, you know, yeah. running gun and mobile hunting. Um, and, you know, one thing that I like to do, kind of related to what you said, I know you said you do a lot of your stand hanging in the summer and you know, to be honest, I usually do probably the majority of my stand hanging in the summer just because I end up procrastinating. But in an ideal world, for me personally, I think it's it's best to hang your stands like right now, if possible, for me. Um, because, you know, when you're in the woods right now or when you're in a tree right now, it looks just about the same as it will during hunting season because the leaves are down, the woods are open. Um, so in a perfect world, if I'm able to get out there right now and do it, I like hanging the stands right now because I can see where I'll be able to see during the hunting season. So I'll have a better idea if I'll have, if I'll have a shot to this trail or this trail. And then I can also see what the deer will be looking at when they look up in the tree at me. Um, so I can get a better idea of, does this tree have enough cover? Does it not? Do I need to add some cover? Something like that. So I'm hoping to hang some stands this spring. I'm heading out to our Ohio property in, I think, two weeks to do some, some moving around with stands. Um, so that's something I try to do, but sometimes you just don't have time and I end up doing it in the summer too. But you know, that can be tough. I've had times where I've hung a stand in the summer and it seems like it's brushed in real nice, but it's kind of deceiving with all those, those leaves during the summer when it all falls, sometimes you can really stick out like a sore thumb yep. come, come hunting season. There's definitely pros and cons to each of those because one con that I've learned from experience. Okay. So it's April or May and you get out there and you trim a set or even March. So you got, June, July, August, September, no, uh, October, that's five months 
almost until the hunting season. There, a lot of branches can fall, a lot of trees can grow, yeah. or you know, things shift in the woods, and that's why I always try to get mine done closer to the hunting season. And this is just my personal uh, take on it, because um, I've the, and the reason I do that is because I had oh, it was a couple of years ago. I went out, set a stand in I think April when I was turkey hunting, and I get out there. It's you know, October 27th or something, you know, that pre-rut's just kicking in, climb my, climb my stand. I'm waiting for the sun to come up. I'm like, oh, this is money. I can just, you know, I can hear deer moving around me in the distance. Here comes this 150 class. I think it was a nine pointer, 10 pointer, something like that. And I I wasn't hundred percent sure if I was going to shoot him or not, but the tree that fell in the meantime made that decision for me. So my, one of my shooting lane was, was blocked and that's why I tend to get it done later, huh. later, uh, in the summertime. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point And so true. Um, you know, I, what I've, tr- what I try to do is if I ever do hang a stand in the spring, you got to get back out there one more time in the summer to try to just double check and, and see what grew up. But I think in a situation, especially like yours, Dan, where you can only get to your properties a few times a year, it, it makes sense that you've got to get the trimming and the stand hanging done at the same time. And you can't really afford to have two trips to do that. Um, and, and lots of times that's the case for me too. So great, great reminder there. And those, uh, gosh, trimming shooting lanes. Like that's another huge topic because how many times have, I feel like there's a fine line I walk when it comes to trimming shooting lanes and trying to do some of that now, some of that later, but I feel like you want to trim enough so that you can get a shot to as many locations as possible. Right. And you always want to, at least I'm telling myself, well, I, I want to cut that limb because what happens if a deer stands right there and I can't get a shot? And so I'll go through this whole thing in my head. But then at the same time, if I get too cut happy and I start cutting too many things down, then all of a sudden I stick out like a sore thumb on this tree and you know, deer are going to spot me. So I feel like I'm always walking this fine line. I'm sometimes going too far one way or the other. Um, but it's a tough one. Do you, do you ever struggle with that too? Okay, so when it comes to shooting lanes... I'm a minimalist. Okay. Um, I know guys that go out there and they'll mow what seems like a fifth, take a football field down (laughs) me. The way I think is an arrow is the size of a screwdriver. You know what I mean? So true. You don't need a football field, but so I cut, I cut my shooting lanes and it's, it's hard to tell differently. I don't cut, a giant lane. I can I guess I, I'm more the long along the lines of pockets and okay. where I think they're coming from. So I have these little pockets out there that have gaps in them and, uh, you know, just hope that they hit one of those pockets. Now I've in the past, I have also sh- cut lanes as well, but I don't know. It's just, it's, I, I, when I go, when I'm hunting, I go a lot with my gut. Okay. As far right. as wh- whether it's setting up or trimming, where do I think this deer is going to come from? And then I'm trimming out these trees. And, you know, if you have the time, if you have the patience, if you have the energy, and this all comes back to your uh, blog that you wrote today about just getting the work done. If you, it, it, you just got to do it, just cut the, cut the lanes, cut them big, cut them wide. So that way, but again, it's a pro and a con. You know, yeah. are, are you sacrificing exposure if you cut a giant shooting lane or remove some of that brush or, 
do you not cut a gigantic shooting lane and have that risk where there's that one branch that's uh, you know keeping you from taking a an ethical shot, which has happened to me before as well. Yeah, yeah that's uh, gosh, it's a doozy. Yeah, I'm a. Uh, <laughs> I think if someone could ever get into my head when I'm out there hunting or preparing a stand location or anything like that, they probably think I'm like a paranoid schizophrenic or something. <laughs> I'm all over the place in my head. I'm like, eh, should I do this? Do I do that? Oh no, I gotta do this. And then two seconds later, I'm like, nope, I gotta do that. Yep. I swear, I probably overthink these things way too much. But I think for me, I, I end up tending the opposite of you. And maybe that's a mistake. Um, it, it is a mistake. I should probably focus on getting more cover. But I'm always so paranoid that that one limb, like you said, it's going to be that one spot. That's going to be, with my luck, that's where the giant buck's going to be. I'm not going to get a shot, and I'm going to sit there for a minute and watch this 160-inch buck sit there at 20 yards and just kick myself in my head because I didn't cut that one dang limb. So <laughs> I don't know. But uh, but that's definitely something that I'll be working on the coming coming weeks and months too. Um, bouncing back a quick second to something you mentioned a little while ago, mineral stations. Um, I like to set those up pretty soon here too. Um, and like you mentioned, not so much for trail camera pictures right now because, you know, they're not really growing much yet. Um, I'll really get my cameras out there heavy in like late June, July, probably. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different research and differing opinions on how much nutritional value there is to those supplements this time of year or all year really. And it's funny, I was actually just doing a little bit of reading on this today because I thought about writing a blog post about it. Um, and, you know, from what I've seen over the years and then from a lot of the guys that are a lot smarter than me who research this stuff, you know, it seems to be that most people believe that, right, these different supplements and mineral blocks, they probably help. They're probably a good thing and they certainly probably don't hurt, but there hasn't been any real substantial hard evidence that says absolutely 100% sure these things definitely increase antler growth or they definitely increase body size or anything like that. Isn't that isn't that crazy? It is. That and and the crazy thing about it is and this kind of gets me back and I know me and you have talked on the side about the hunting industry and the pros and the cons and all these other things. But a company says bigger bucks or your money back. Well, how, how, I mean, how can you even prove that? Well, that's that's the whole point of it, right, Dan? Is yep. no one can prove it, so that no one gets their money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but okay, yeah. so so in reading that and looking at, you know, I read some articles as well, and um, right now in the gestation period of a doe uh, this time of year is when they start building up their milk supply and lactating. They start right. uh, the lactation process, I guess. Now, you know, what I'm saying right now is all secondhand information from the, the place that I read it. But some, you know, some of these minerals are, they claim to have nutritional value. Some of them claim to pretty much just be attractants right. to get bucks or deer in front of your trail cameras. But the way I look at it is, you know, if it didn't have some type of nutritional value or it didn't benefit them, then why do they continually come back to that location? I don't know. And the way I, the way I look at it is, have you ever been deprived of carbohydrates and your, your body is 
craving like chips or um, something crunchy and you have that feeling that you need something. Yeah. Yeah. Let me take a really quick um, off topic run here because it's a great story. One time in college, I was staying up all night to study for a test and I drank two monster energy drinks. Bad idea, right? I drank two monster energy drinks in like four hours and I was up till like six in the morning, finally got done try to go to bed at six in the morning to get a couple hours of sleep before my test, like at nine. And I laid in bed, like shaking. And I had, I had this, <laughs> and I had this craving just that you just talked about. Like I needed carbs. So I had a box of goldfish crackers, a whole box, like not the little like quart bag, but the full box of them. And I swear, I swear to goodness, I ate the entire box in one helping in like 15 minutes, just sitting in my bunk bed in my loft in my dorm room, just hammering these goldfish crackers. <laughs> that would have been a sight to so, see. It was, and that, that's my uh, my one diatribe off topic today, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, I mean, so, you know, so you would think that they come to it for a reason, and just because it smells good doesn't mean they're going to continually eat it. It must, the way I look at it is it must have some kind of value that they need, you know, because in, in nature, you're either a necessity or you're not, you know, nature is more black and white. I think, you know, if there, there's not, there's not luxuries, it's either life or death. You need this or you don't need it. And that's, you know, that's, I don't know. It's just kind of a crazy idea I have. And if, and the benefit is, you know, if you get a big buck in front of your camera, that's awesome too. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I tend to be with you on that too. Um, you know, there's nothing absolutely 100% substantially proved about what these minerals or different things do. But I think, like you said, it can't, I don't think it can hurt. I think it does help in, in some maybe intangible way. And heck, I'm happy to help these deer out in any way I can. Um, so I'll put it out there. And like you said, then for sure, there's some that are just attractants for the most part and they work great for what they need to do, like getting pictures. So, so yeah, good points all the way around. Um, what about another thing we, we saw, you sort of touched on a little bit earlier, um, when you mentioned access and I don't know if you're doing any of this, this time of year at all either. Um, but what I'm trying to do right now, one of the things on my list for the next couple of weeks is trying to prep some entry and exit routes. Um, we talked about this a little bit, probably I think it was episode number one, about how you learned in that one spot how you needed to have a different access route to get to your stand without bumping deer, right? Right. Um, so that's something I'm trying to figure out right now is where are the areas on my property where I have been spooking deer coming in and out, and then what can I do differently in that travel way or travel path or whatever it might be to get there without having that that conflict. Um, I think this is another topic we could talk about for hours because entry and exit, I think is something that most or a lot of hunters overlook. Uh, I know I did for a really long time. You know, I just, I just walked right into my stand and the, the quickest way to get there. And I walked right out in the evening and I was spooking deer all the time. And I didn't think it was a big deal. I always thought, you know, after dark or before daylight, no big deal. But you know, the more I've gotten into this and I think the more you get serious about hunting these older deer, you find out that any type of interaction like that can educate a mature deer and can, you know, hurt your chances of ever seeing him during daylight again. So 
So that's something I'm trying to do right now, finding those spots where maybe I can clear a path or just make a path a little easier. I'm going to go through a couple of the areas that I have um, and actually have a little backpack sprayer with some Roundup in it and just try to kill off a little bit of the vegetation right on my footpath so that that's one less thing that can make noise when I'm going in and out this fall. Um, and I know that some of that, you know, I'm going to have to touch up again later this year, but just little things like that, trying to do a little bit more to give me just a touch bit more of a, of a quiet exit and entry. Um, so I don't know, do you, do you work on that or are you planning on doing anything like that this year? Well, you know, I think since our lap, since the very first podcast and where I did talk about, you know, that learning experience I had with, um, that area that was holding all the big deer. So I, I, I was proactive. I called the landowner and I said, Hey, th- I hunt right along this, ri- this river. It's right, or it's more of a creek. It was real low, so you can cross it at certain times. And I said, do you mind if I park my truck on your property and come in from the opposite side to my hunting stand? Well, the answer was no. I, I didn't, I'm not, he said, I would rather you not do that. So, you know, you got to respect his word. Yep. So, I, the only other option is, is to come in from a completely different direction. And we're talking... You know, a lot of people say, well, I, I walk a mile to my tree stand. Okay, walking a mile in a, in a, with a backpack on, with uh, a tree stand on your back sometimes, with a bow in hand. You know, I can walk a mile on a treadmill uh, probably in a comfortable walk, not too fast, not too slow, maybe 10 minutes. Yeah, sounds right. Okay. Now you add all those obstacles, terrain. You know, it's going to take you a long time to walk a mile to a tree stand with that said, you know, there, there are limited options. And, you know, if you want to be extreme about it, you can do that. You know, will I do that? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if a buck deserves that first. (laughs) Yeah. It's tough. It's gosh. A lot of times, like you said, if you want to be able to get in there through the back door or whatever way it is to avoid being, you know, in interaction with those deer before you want to, you got to go way out of your way sometimes. I've got a situation just like you mentioned where on one of my main properties, if I want to get to the back of that property to hunt some of this high ground back there, I have to walk all the way through all the good stuff. So I went and asked the neighbor, just like you, asked for permission to access my property from the back, just passing through their property. And this this uh, family, they don't hunt. They don't do anything on that property. So I thought it'd be okay. And I, I got permission to do that. Um but then later that year, turns out their neighbor um, didn't end up liking the fact that I guess they hunted. So they didn't like the fact that I was walking by their property and they they put the kibosh on that. So now I'm kind of stuck in a, in a similar situation where I, I don't have a lot of great options. And because of that, I've almost stopped hunting that area completely because I'd rather not hunt it at all, even though it looks like a great spot and it has, you know, has a lot of potential. I'm getting to the point now where I'd rather not go into a great area if I know I'm going to spook a bunch of deer. I'd I'd rather not make that or risk that because it just can hurt your hunting so much. I think. Yeah, and the scenario that I have is the the creek makes a giant U. So this piece, this little section and strips of timber that I like to hunt in this edge is almost a peninsula. So the, other than cutting right through the middle of it to get to a stand location, you have got to drop down into a washout, get to a creek, walk all the way up and around to where you want to be. And, you know, 
it's just something that I, that, you know, it's pretty much, you just got to do it. If you want to hunt there and come in undetected, you just got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, those, uh, having a Creek or something like that is so perfect when they're there. It's great because that makes just a perfect perfect access route you can be low out of sight you're not going to leave scent because you're walking through the water it's pretty quiet I, I love it when i've got a property with that kind of access route yeah unless uh unless there's like eight feet of water in it you don't like swimming to your stand <laughs> <laughs> uh, late november would be a little chilly yeah it would <laughs> similarly to uh mid-february i've swam in that river that you're talking about or one of them <laughs> cold yeah. that's what it is um, there's a, there's a pretty good book actually on this topic that I just read earlier this year. Um, it's by Bill Winky, who, you know, is the creator of MidwestWhitetail.com. Um, the book's called, I think trophy terrain volume one, and it's creeks and ditches is what it's called. So it's a small book. Um, but it talks pretty much just about this talking about how you can use ditches and creeks to better hunt deer and a big part of that is is understanding how you can use those to get in and out of your stands um so that's something i'd recommend people check out i enjoyed that it's a quick read but there's a couple good pointers i got out of that that i think i'll be able to use more this year too um so we'll put a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to check that out and that's the that's the crazy thing like that's one experience from bill wanky and uh you know dan last week talked about his experience with the marsh buck or the hill country bucks from some right. of the other DVDs that he's put out. But as a hunter, you have to be able to be, to observe your surroundings and make educated guesses on your property. I mean, you can't, you can't read a book about crick access and then expect to use those same principles going into a, a, a giant timber scenario you know um you have to be able to read those principles and apply it to your scenario so it's you know and that's one thing that a lot of these a lot of hunters and if you're listening today that you really should take away from these podcasts is slow down observe your surrounding and make a educated guess on what you have in front of you because, you know, these guys are get these quote unquote professionals or people with more experience and these guys have killed some giant deer. They, you know, they have their story to tell and you have to be able to apply it to, to your, your hunting uh, situation. Yeah. So true. I think it's, everything's different, right? All of our situations are different. We've got a different uh, hand of cards dealt to each one of us. And I, what I try to do, like you said, is, is learn, look at these different experiences or stories or recommendations that guys have, try to see what the basic principle is there. And then, like you said, figure out what that is, or maybe it's a system or whatever it is, and then apply that to your circumstances. Um, yeah, I think that's huge. And then, you know, the other thing kind of tying into what my, what my blog post again was today is lots of times we'll, we'll hear these things, we'll read these things. And we're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I should do that. But so many times I I'm guilty of this is I'll, you know, read 50 different great ideas and things I should do. But then when it gets to hunting season, I just fall back into the same old, same old, what's easy, you know, what's what I'm used to. It's a lot more difficult to actually implement those great ideas that you talk about or that you read about. Um, 
it's a lot easier to, to kind of forget about and fall back into the routine. Um, so that's something that just, again, kind of like what I talked about earlier in this, uh, in the show today is what I'm trying to do is make myself accountable with these things. So I'm trying to, you know, write out these specific goals. So whether it be, you know, work I want to do earlier in the year, like these different projects we've been talking about today, or if it's a change in my strategy or something I really want to do differently this hunting season, I'm trying to find ways to hold myself accountable to make those changes. So this is just a system that works for me, but for me, I need to write things down. When I write things down and I check back on it later, that works for me and it helps me, you know, stick to it and actually make progress on it. So again, I'm setting these goals so that later in the year I can look back at it and say, okay, Mark, don't be an idiot. You told, you wrote it down, <laughs> you know that you can't walk out across the open field at night. You got to take the back route in. And then, you know, even though I'm cold, even though I'm tired, even though I'm really hungry and I just want to give it to the truck, when I am frequently looking back at these things that I'm telling myself I got to do it and reminding myself, I'm much more likely to do the right thing versus the easy thing. So exactly. it's almost like you wish you had a tattoo on your hand or on your <laughs> wrist somewhere that said no shortcuts and that, you, that, cause I mean, some, some people out there may have a week they get a hunt or just weekends. Or for me, I take two weeks off every November and I hunt straight through that. There's, there's guys out there who hunt way longer than that, but going into week two, I am sleep deprived. I'm exhausted. That starts to be when I'm starting to fall asleep in the stand. Yeah. Um, all those things. It's just like, I wish I had a little angel or a little version of my mom on my shoulder, slapping me <laughs> in the back of the head and saying, what are you thinking? What are you doing? <laughs> Your mom doesn't sound like that. Oh, I know, but you know, <laughs> I got to make her sound more like a mom. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I, I wish I had the same thing. That's so true. Um, and this is another another link off to post in the show notes. There's an article that we put out last year. Um, it's actually in, I don't know if you saw it, Dan, but we released an ebook last fall called the rules of the rut. It was a compilation of different rut related tips and articles and stuff. And one of those was about the mental challenge of hunting the rut. And for, you know, for you and me, when we're hunting like two weeks straight all day, that is grueling, but really the, the basic idea that can apply anytime during the season, right? It's, like you said, not taking the shortcuts, it's sticking to it. It's, you know, staying focused, staying motivated, keeping a positive attitude. All those things can be really tough to do, especially, you know, after hunting for 10 straight days. Um, but really at any point of the year or, you know, in December, after you've hunted a lot all year, you still haven't got your deer, things have been going bad. I think, uh, you know, having that stick to and that persistence and attitude, gosh, it makes a huge difference. Yep. Yep. It's uh, it's a never-ending, it's a, it's a never-ending thing, man. It's just always moving forward, always learning, and you know, and that's the thing that I'm starting to learn. As and it's taken me, it took me, you know, I didn't seriously start hunting until 2006. Okay, now I hunted way before that, but I didn't. I was that person who probably like a majority of the hunters are. You set a, you set a, set a ladder stand up. At the beginning of the year, you set in that one stand or you go to another stand that you've previously set up. You may not have cut shooting lanes, but it's there. That stands there and you go back to it year after year after year and you get into a rut. And then, you know, I think 2006 is when I was introduced to serious hunting um, and into some of the uh, hunting industry and I was exposed to 
talking with other hunters who were successful and, you know, talking to them, reading articles, you know, and being able to judge which article was trying to sell you something and uh, as opposed to trying to uh, teach you something. Right. So, and knowing that has, in my opinion, even though I haven't killed a lot, a lot of giant deer, I, I have become a better hunter because I am learning from every hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And gosh, we're coming up on time here, so I can't talk too much on this, but I want to jump on something you just said there because it's super important. The fact that you just said that, you know, you didn't start really getting serious about this stuff until 2006. And, you know, I'm not too different from that either. I hunted my entire life since I was like three years old. I've been in a deer blind, but you know, the way I learned and the way I grew up, it was just like that. Go out there, sit in a bucket or sit in a tree stand in the same spot, you know, sat that same area time and time and time again, because there was one scrape right in front of that tree stand or whatever. Um, and it wasn't until, gosh, for me, it might've been right around the same time, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there, um, where I started taking it to that next level and started trying to hunt a little bit differently and focus on a different type of deer. But while that's when we made that, you know, you and I made that jump at that point, people are coming into this thing at different skill levels and at different experiences. And that's okay. Um, you know, we talk a lot about hunting mature deer and in your case, right, you mentioned that you saw 150 inch deer and you weren't sure if you wanted to shoot it. And that's because you've had where you hunt and the experiences you've had, it's put you in a position where you're willing to do that. But for me, you know, if I saw a 150 inch buck, given where I am on my experience ladder, I'll call it, you know, I'm on that rung of the ladder. If I saw a 150 inch deer, I'm shooting it. And then, you know, there might be somebody else like my buddy, Josh, who I just got into hunting, uh, you know, a handful of years ago. If he saw a 110 inch buck, he might want to shoot that deer because that'd be a great deer for him at this point. And I just want to make a point to all the listeners out there that that's okay. You know, wherever you're at, that's great. And what I would just say is, you know, find what you're happy with. And for some guys, they just want to shoot a deer for meat. And I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to say that's wrong. That's fine. That's perfectly great. I do too. Um, So if you want to shoot a small buck or a doe, that's okay. If you want to do something different, if you want to hold out for maturity, that's great too. And that's fine. I think that people just need to make sure they come into it with the right expectations. Um, You know, today if you're watching TV and you see everybody shooting a 170-inch, you know, Boone and Crockett buck, that's not something that you need to think that you can realistically do. And, and you shouldn't be disappointed when you can't. Um, at least for me, I, I like to look at it as if you want to reach a goal, work on making an incremental step toward it every year, or every once in a while, but don't feel bad that you can't hit that ultimate goal right away. Yep. And my, you know, it's like my stepdad, he is uh if it's a brown, it's down type of hunter. Yep. And if it makes him happy, you know, go for it. Yeah. And, you know, I go to some of these trade shows and I hear some of these people say things like, well, you know, if I don't shoot him, my neighbor will. Well, I don't have another second for that person because I don't like excuses. You know, you are part of the problem if you don't have that. You know, this is this is I'm getting on, off on a tangent because this is another this, this is obviously another topic that we could go on as far as management principles and, and whatnot. But, you know, you got to do what's happy if uh, if shooting a doe. Or a small buck makes you happy. Do it. Just you know, and the only person you have to answer to is yourself. Yep. Yep. And I think, like you said, we're definitely going to have to have a whole another episode just about this. Um, but tagging onto what you just said, the guys that say, "Well, if I don't shoot it, my neighbor will." If that guy 
wants to shoot that deer and like you said if that makes him happy okay shoot it that's great um but if he's shooting it just because he claims his neighbor is going to shoot it again i like to say well okay if you don't shoot that deer what percent chance do you think it has that the neighbor is going to shoot it maybe maybe if he thinks his neighbor's really a heck of a hunter and he's going to shoot anything maybe 50 percent, maybe one out of two times that deer might make it in reality it's probably a lot less than that but let's say he says 50 percent. well then i ask him what's the percent chance that that deer is going to live if you shoot it well zero percent so if you do want that deer to make it to an older age class saying that you're just going to shoot it because the neighbor's gonna that that doesn't make any sense at all he has a lot better chance if you let him go um so I guess that's just what I would say to anyone who wants to see older deer and who is targeting that older age class. You got to let them go. You can't make those excuses. But then again, if you're okay shooting a year and a half old deer and if that's what you want to do, okay. But don't but don't tell me you're doing it because your neighbor is going to. Yeah, well, we definitely went off on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah. We should probably shut her down, Mark. I think you're right. I think you're right, Dan. Anything else, though, do you think we need to, we need to add before before doing that? No, I think we're good to go. And, uh, you know, I'm already taking notes for next week. So, um, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope that the people who are listening tell their friends and, uh, are at least, uh, you know, like I, I don't claim to be a professional anything except I used to hold a, a record at pizza hut for most trips to the buffet. Uh, <laughs> so I would consider myself an expert on that. But anything else, take with a grain of salt because, like you know, like we said, you know, your hunting properties and your scenarios are different than ours. Yep, that's that is so true. We're all in a different position. We're all have different experience levels, different circumstances. So, so yeah, we're all going to try to learn along as we go and and get better and and do what what makes us have a good time. We're out there hunting. So, so yeah, this is great. I hope this has been helpful for everyone uh, out there today too. You know, we covered a little bit about different projects we're working on. We talked about, you know, that idea of the fact that you really just need to sometimes, if you're shooting for one of these older deer, bigger deer, it's going to take a lot of hard work. And I think that's kind of the the final piece of advice I'd like to, I guess, maybe end on here is just, you know, in the end, you just need to do the work. No excuses, no complaining, you know, no procrastination. If you really have this goal of, of shooting mature deer or whatever it is your goal is, you know, make the time and put in the effort to make that happen. Um, you know, what's that saying? They say that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. I think right now, you know, the springtime, the summer, this is the time for that preparation. So, you know, we got to get after it. We got to get off our tails and, and start preparing. So that's my rant for the day. Um, that said, though, to all of you listening, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. We've gotten really great feedback on the podcast so far just with our first three episodes. And we're stoked that you guys are enjoying it. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And I think Dan and I both would agree that we're really excited about what's to come um, in the next couple weeks and months as we get closer to the summer and then the hunting season. We've got some really cool episodes in store. And um, I'm just excited that you guys will be joining us along the way. If you have been enjoying the podcast, like we've asked a couple times, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It really is a big deal. It helps us out a lot, and it'll only take you a couple minutes. So thanks in advance for that. And then finally, we do need to thank our partners, who we appreciate so much for helping keeping this on the air, you know, keeping Wired to Hunt going. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Lacrosse Boots, 
Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. You know, these are products that I've been using and I've been really happy with, and they're they're great guys and people to work with as well. So thank you. And then finally, be sure to visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode four to view the show notes. That's going to be where I'll put some of the different links to things we've talked about today that you might want to follow up on. And then if you haven't done so yet, please sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter so you get different updates when we've got new cool stuff coming on the website. So I think that's everything I want to touch on. Thank you again, Wired to Hunt Nation. And until next time, have an awesome week and stay wired to hunt. Wired to hunt.